0: Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's word to be challenged and changed. Good morning, Compass Church. How are we doing? I don't know whether to feel excited or disappointed that this room is so full. Um, you're like, why would you feel so disappointed? Well, because I know that some of you are here because the Cardinals are playing at 125 and the third service isn't an option for you. (laughs) Although I totally understand because go cards, but, um, yeah. Hi, we, we doing good. Everyone good. Good. My name is Mike Cerati. Um, I'm the pastor of Students and Families here at Compass Church, and uh, I'm so excited to be here with you today. We are uh, continuing um, in our series called The Seven Letters. These are letters re- um, recorded in the book of Revelations written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, uh, and today we're going to be looking at the letter written to Pergamum. So we'll find that in Revelation chapter 2, verses, starting in verse 12, and we'll, we'll, be, we'll be on that here in just a moment. Um, But I want to give you a chance to kind of turn to that. One of the things that I like to do, starting out a message, I like to start with a question, okay? I really like to get my audience thinking about the possibility that this could impact their lives right off the bat. So here, I have a question for you, okay? Here is the question, and I want you to think. uh, notice how I word this, okay? What would you say if I told you that there's something in your life, something that you are often blind to, that is dangerous enough that it could completely destroy your walk with God. Now, the last part of that question is worded the way it is intentionally. I want you to understand, I'm not just talking about something that's dangerous. I'm not, just, I'm not just talking about something that poses a risk to you. I'm talking about something that no matter where your current walk with God is, no matter where your level of faith is, if you don't pay attention to this, it could completely derail your walk with God. Yes, I mean you. And what if I told you that this thing is something that you've already allowed into your life and you probably did it willingly? You're like, what is it? I wanna know. I'm gonna tell you in a moment. Let me transition to something about myself i love history okay i just do i love history i love stories now for those of you in this room who are history buffs like you 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 know history history is like your thing please don't look at me as one of you uh there's a difference between the two of us okay the the difference is you have a memory okay so people teach you things and then your brain says that's cool let's store it i hear things and i go that's really cool and then my brain goes i'm done with that So I know that I love history because I can sit and hear stories about wars and certain individuals and things like that, and I'm just like, wow, because I really like details. I want to know the details of stories. But then if someone were to ask me details later about the specific story, I'd just be like, I don't know, but I like that story. (laughs) So don't come up to me afterwards and be like, we're the same people, because we're not. You're better, okay? I don't have a memory. So history people, Um, Feel free to correct me if what I'm about to talk about is wrong, but we're gonna go back into the history books, okay? How many of you have ever heard of the legend of the Trojan War? Raise your hand, okay, and I call it a legend. It's a part of history, but we're not It's probably not true or maybe parts of it are true. We don't know Um, But more specifically the part that we're gonna look at today is the legend of the Trojan horse Right and all like the computer people are like I know what that is. That's a virus Before that okay (laughs) before that, the first Trojan horse, which had no coding whatsoever, okay? Um, this is a very important and interesting war, and we're gonna look at it today. We're actually gonna weave this, the language of this war into our entire sermon, because I think it really helps us, okay? So the Trojan War was caused um, early, very, very, very many years ago by a prince of Troy named Paris, who went over to Greece and kidnapped the wife of another king who was Greek, and then took the princess home, and Married her so kidnapping. So this is also the first case of soap operas ever recorded. This is where we got the idea Very very good way to start a war is to go be an invited guest to the king's house And then think his wife is beautiful and take her home and make her yours like that's that's not a thing you shouldn't do that um, so Inevitably, the Greeks find out what happened. They, they combine all of their nations. They come together with this massive army. They sail over to Troy, and they, they lay siege to the city of Troy. Now, what you may or may not remember, I didn't remember. I, just, I was like, wow, it took that long? This is the way my brain works. That war actually lasted for 10 years. 10 years, the city of Troy is, is under siege. And for 10 years, the city of Troy held strong. It's pretty impressive, right? I mean, 10-year war right at your gates. That that's gonna be hard to survive. But in this case, something crazy happens. One of the Greeks, they're saying, they're like, hey, I have an idea, let's build a big horse. And then let's give it to them with a bunch of our people inside. That'll work, right? Like that someone's like that'll never work. That'll never. It's like, no, trust me. It'll work. And guess what? It worked, right? Um, so really what happened, according to the legend, is they build this massive horse. They stuff some Greek soldiers inside and they kind of leave it. And then the rest of the Greek army literally hightails out of there. They get in the boats and they take off. They leave it behind. They desert the battlefield. And really what they do, is they get on the boats and they kind of sail to this close by island and wait. And then I love telling stories from my own perspective. I imagine as I'm telling this, a little like surf type dude with a spear and kind of a dumb guy's face, wakes up and he's like, they're gone. I knew this day would come and I knew we'd be friends again after it was over. They left us a present, yay. And the crowd goes, yay, right? That's kind of how I imagine it because it's ridiculous so what do they do they send out like scouts they go out and they're like man they're really gone there's no one here we can bring the horse inside it's safe I winked I hope you saw that it wasn't safe that was stupid you don't bring that inside so what happens we know from the legend from the history they bring the horse inside and then they like go to sleep 10 years of war and they're like it's over. We're good. There's no one here. Let's go to bed, right? So now, the Greeks sneak back. They bring their boats, and they, they come up. I don't know if they killed a scout or something. Who knows? But they get there. No one knows what's happening. And then they kind of wait outside the gate. And then the guys and the horse, they crawl out, because when you open a door to wood, that doesn't make noise. And no one heard it, and they go to the gates. They raise the gate, and the Greeks rush in, and Troy is sacked. Crazy story, right? Silly story. But here's, here's where it kind of ties together. To what we're talking about today the threat came from within 10 years of siege at their gates and no one can come in but finally they're destroyed from inside their walls interestingly enough that is exactly why john is going to write to the church in pergamum okay so revelation chapter 2 Starting in verse 12, let's read this together. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, and remember Tim's been talking about this, the angel is the overseer or pastor of the church, so to the pastor and overseer write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who would hold the teaching of Balaam and, taught, and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, So that they might eat the food sacrificed to the idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war with them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, Revelation is, is full of symbolism, because you got poor John being, being shown all of this stuff with his an, an, you know, la- ancient language, trying to describe stuff with have future, fi- all, so there's symbolism everywhere. Poor John's just trying to say, it was like this, and in this case here, we've got some language here that we need to unpack so that we understand what's going on, because a lot of times you read the book of Re- Revelation, you're just like, What? Like, what does that mean? You get someone, I'll tell you what it means. You're like, how does that guy know? John was, whatever. Anyway, so the first thing I want to kind of unpack here is this idea of the two-edged sword, okay? Um, Anytime you see this term in scripture, it's always applying to the word of God, okay? Whether spoken or written, okay? So there's written word of God. There's the Old Testament these times. It's always replying, it's always replying Uh, pointing us to the word of God. Okay. In fact, we see in Hebrews 4, 12 for the word of God is a living and active. I'm sorry for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the, the double-edged sword is always referring to God's word, a powerful word. And this actual phrase here also had some other significance because Pergamum was a major religious center in Rome, one of the most major religious cities in Rome. Um, it was also a major part of like, the Roman stra- uh, strategy from, with, with religion. So they, they, Rome looked at this as a very strategic place, Especially because they had just implemented what we call Caesar worship, right? They declare the Caesar is now a deity, and this is where we're going to set up a major temple to worship him. And what's interesting is, because Pergamum was such a big part of the Roman um, empire, they put a, pro, a proconsul there, and a proconsuls the dude who's allowed to kill people, who do things dumb. And his, the symbol of his presence, like above his door would have been a sword. And so really what God's saying here symbolically through John is that, yeah, I know that there's a sword there that you're afraid of, but don't forget about mine. Mine's got two sides. I'm more powerful than any earthly governor. So it's kind of a direct shot at the culture. The other the other phrase that I want to unpack here is, is Satan's throne. We see this a couple times in this text. We're like, what does that mean? We already talked about how Pergamum was this major religious center. Okay, they had the um, Caesar like cult worship where you bowed down and said, I worship Caesar because he's God. We talked about that. They also had. Um, Uh, a god called um, Asclepius. He was the Greek god of medicine and people came from all over the world to be healed by the god Asclepius, Asclepius. And his symbol, interestingly enough, was a serpent. And it would have been seen all over the city, this serpent because they worshiped Asclepius. There was also other temples to Zeus, to Dionysus, to Athene. So this is a reference to really all of this, okay? So clearly Satan has a stronghold in Pergamum. He has all these people convinced they're all worshiping one or other, or all the gods and all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's completely and utterly pagan. However... Despite living in a city that's so clearly the foothold, as God would put it, the throne of Satan, John is clear that the church in Pergamum has held strong in their faith in Jesus. That's interesting. This is true even after the death of a man named Antipas. Who's Antipas? Okay, here's the deal. Antipas was obviously martyred, okay? He was killed for his faith in Jesus because he held strong as a witness. This is is in the text here. But we really know nothing about him other than a legend about how he died. Again, we don't know that this is history, but this is what um, the kind of the legend of Antipas' death in Pergamum, okay? Here's how he died. The legend says that he was roasted in a brazen bull, I'm gonna put a picture of one of these things up on the screen, because you're like, what's a brazen bull? I've heard of a brazen hussy, but I've never even understood what that means, right? What is a brazen bull? Well, here's what they are. They were a life-size bull, right? Made, not human life, but actually bull-size, human life, bull-size. They built these things huge, but the inside was um, hollow. And it had areas where you'd put a human inside, like tie up their arms and tie up their legs, and then they'd take this bull and pull it o- put it over file, fire and burn the guy inside of it alive. And if that's if that's not disturbing enough, the other thing they did, this just shows how despicable this was. I don't know how they did this. No one, I couldn't find any any, um, answer to this, but somehow they made it so when the person inside screamed, it would come out of the bull's mouth. His head's kind of up there, as you can see. It'd come out of the bull's mouth, sounding like a bull roaring. So they're almost mocking this person's death as they're being burned alive inside. This is Terrible, terrible stuff. This is what legend says happened to Antipas, one of Pergamum's own, one of the church in Pergamum's own. So I want you to imagine that as a context following Jesus. this is what I could get. This is what might happen to me. This is what happened to Antipas. and despite the strong reality and the type of persecu- or, or of the strong reality of persecution or death, this church holds strong in their faith in Jesus. this is really quite a thing. I mean, That's a big deal. Following Jesus, that could happen to you, or worse. But they remain strong, and we need to make sure that we recognize that this church has a profoundly strong faith. They're willing to follow God to the point of death. However, the believers in Pergamum were not faultless before God. God says, I have a few things against you. Let's read these things again, so we can figure out what they mean. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. What does that all mean? Balak, Balaam, Nicolaitans. I, who knows what any of that stuff is? So let's let's try and unpack this. okay? so it seems that the church has allowed a compromising group of people to infiltrate their church to worship among them. And these aren't just any people who compromise their theology and their faith. They're people who practice things that God really seemed to dislike. God is not happy that these specific people are a part of his church because of what they teach. And it doesn't necessarily look like the church has followed these teachings per se, right? But they've allowed these people to remain among them. So the next the, qu- the question becomes, why is God taking them so seriously? Why is God so frustrated that these people are allowed in the church at Pergamum? Well, this kind of goes back to many, many years ago in the Old Testament where we see Israel... Um, going into the land of Canaan, okay, if you've never heard of this before, I'll try and just describe it to you. God gives Israel this land, and he says you're gonna have to go in and conquer it, but when you're conquering it, you can't leave anyone alive. Everyone has to go, not only because these people are wicked, and I mean, these people were wicked. They're killing babies and all kinds of stuff. It's a nasty pagan culture. Um, not only that, but if you allow them to like remain among you, you're probably going to end up kind of adopting some of their stuff. And then you're going to, you're, you're not going to follow me. So you got to get rid of all of them. Well, what happened was they're coming up to the Moabites, which is a, a group, uh, like a group of nations kind of came together. And King Balak goes after this guy named Balaam and says, Hey, let's trick Israel is in the short of the story into just kind of aligning with us. There's a long story there, but that's really what ends up happening. In this small compromise, so Israel's like, well, what's the big deal? It's just one group. We'll just let them in. You know, they can be our slaves or something, right? This small compromise, as history goes on, turns into a big problem for Israel for generations to come. It led them to an alliance with the Moabite people, which was forbidden by God. It led them to eating food sacrificed by idols, which was forbidden by God. It led them to sexual immorality and intermarrying, which is forbidden by God in the Old Testament. So they're just doing all the stuff that God said don't do. And it was all because Balak and Balaam conceived this plan to corrupt Israel from within. And it worked. So Satan here is clearly trying to get the Christians of Pergamum to fall in this trap again. They've got this strong faith, but now there's people inside who Satan's going to try and get to influence them. This time, based off the culture that we've already talked about, sort of the, the, the voice in their ears would have probably sounded like this. You know, there's really nothing wrong with being friendly to Rome. What harm is there in putting just a small pinch of incense on the altar, affirming your, affirming your loyalty to Caesar? Just, just a tiny, tiny little compromise. In other words, Satan so had not been able to destroy the church within from a, or destroy the church from a frontal attack. So he's beginning to make inroads now as a deceiving serpent. So why would the church let these people in? A church so full of faith, why would they compromise and let these people in? The answer is simple. And it's not that hard to understand. It was one small, teeny, tiny compromise. They probably thought, what's the big deal? William Barclay, um, a commentary on this, writes this. This was not an enemy from the outside, openly seeking to destroy the faith. These false teachers claimed not only that they were, or not that they were destroying Christianity, but that they were presenting an improved and modernized version of it. We're not really changing anything. We're just having you just change with the times. It's not a big deal. For all intents and purposes, this was a strong, faith-filled church, Jesus-loving church, willing to die for their faith in Jesus. Yet clearly, God is adamant that they repent. There is a threat that they must address or God will come and address it for them. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. You see, Satan has placed a Trojan horse with the teaching of the Nicolaitans and Balaam and Balak among them and the threat to their church is very real just like it was generations prior. The church Strong in faith now is in trouble because there's a Trojan horse among them. And if they don't learn quickly, they do not learn quickly. Things are going to go. Things are going to take a turn for the worse. There's two things they need to learn. These, these apply well to us. Number one, Satan's attacks are not always direct. We've, experienced, we've all experienced these direct attacks in our lives, right? We've all done this, okay? For Pergamon, it was the threat of persecution or death. For us, it could be the loss of a job, loss of a loved one, some sort of tragedy. It could be a severe illness. And these direct attacks, what they always do is they always draw us either, they always either push us away from God or draw us closer. And that's the thing about these direct attacks. No matter what happens, it's always difficult, right? No matter what it is, the direct attacks are painful. And in reality, some of us, when those direct attacks come, we realize we need God even more. But other of us, we just get mad because we think that God allowed it or made it happen. In this case, the direct attack didn't work against the church of Pergamum. In fact, it probably drew them closer to God. And in lots of cases in our lives, the direct attack does not always work, right? Sometimes the tragedy comes and we're like, God, I need you more. And so what Satan has to do for Pergamum is think of a new strategy, a new scheme. And here's the, here's the issue, though. He's an expert at deploying the Trojan horse. And he does this by taking aim at our thoughts. Neil T. Anderson says this, Satan's strategy is to infiltrate your mind with his thoughts and to promote his lie in the face of God's truth. If he can control your thoughts, he can control your life. We see this in the garden with Eve in Genesis 3. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We see it in John John 13, verse 2, um, with Judas. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's sons, to betray Jesus. And then again, in Acts 5 with Ananias, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? And we see it here again in Pergamum. What's the big deal if we allow the Nicolaitans? What's the big deal if these people come in? They really won't hurt anything. After all, they only believe slightly different than us. What harm could it really cause? What harm could it really cause? I want that question to reverberate in your heart right now. This is undoubtedly a question that Israel asked right before agreeing years ago to the alliance with Balak. And it's clearly a question. It's a dangerous way of thinking. And it's definitely something that you and I, a time or two in our lives, have fallen into. Am I right? What's the big deal if? Can I just propose something? I believe this with all my heart, and I'm gonna propose it, and I'm gonna pray that you take it and you use it the rest of your life. I do not believe that line of thinking or questioning is ever from God. If a sentence in your mind starts with that, it's not from him. Second Corinthians ten three through five says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war in the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is a powerful and important idea that we must and the church in Pergamum must figure out if we're going to withstand this attack from Satan in our thoughts. We need to learn to take thoughts captive to obey Christ. And I'm talking about the thoughts that make us doubt and question and maybe think it's really not that big of a deal. For Pergamum, we've already said this. The thoughts probably sounded something like, you know, life really would be a lot easier if people just knew that I was loyal to Rome. And it would have. Life would have been easier. And for us, these thoughts, they come in all the time. Some of them sound like this. Would God really care if I did this? Maybe just this once, it's not that big of a deal. God will forgive me anyway, right? Did God really say that I couldn't? No one will ever find out. They can even sound like this. There's a different type of thought. I'm stupid. I'm dumb. I'm ugly. I'm no good. No one wants me. No one cares about me. No one would notice if. Those thoughts are not from God. They never have been. They never will be. 2 Corinthians 10 is asking us to consider what does God's word say when these thoughts come into my mind? Does this thought fall in line with what Jesus wants in my life? Do, Do they agree with what he says about me? If not, we've got to learn to say, wait! And ask the question, Is that from God? No, it's not from God. And if it's not, then we reject it and call it what it is, a lie. And if we don't learn to take our thoughts captive, we become susceptible to one of Satan's greatest tools in our lives, compromise. You see, Pergamum had already fallen short They'd already not taken the thoughts captive. They'd already not dealt with what they should have dealt with. They just took the easy road. It hadn't necessarily influenced them yet because letting the people in didn't really, didn't really change a whole lot yet as far as we can tell, but clearly God is not happy with their presence and clearly God is concerned with their presence remaining. Compromise. If Pergamum is gonna continue to compromise, We've got a problem because compromise is always dangerous to your walk with God, always. And I'm not talking about the type of compromise where you and your wife are like in the car and you're trying to decide what meal you're going to go have and one of you wants to go to Chick-fil-A and one of you wants to go to Chipotle and you can't agree and you don't want to get in a fight so you end up at jack-in-the-box okay and let me just say this if you're ever at jack-in-the-box you've made a wrong life choice turn around and leave okay it's better to be in a fight, I'm just kidding, okay? But I'm not talking about that type of compromise where we're picking between one of two things. I'm also not talking about the type of compromise where you go with something less um, delightful, less good, like grade B, like Coca-Cola versus Dr. Pepper, right? It's not the type of compromise where you take this, the, the lower uh, stuff in Coke and pass up the nectar of Jesus, AKA Dr. Pepper. It's not that type of compromise that we're talking about either. The type of compromise that we're talking about is when we act on wisdom that is not from God. It's when we act on wisdom that is not from God. As such, compromise is so, so dangerous. It opens the door in our minds through deceit to doubt and ultimately blindness of sin. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Christians, right now, there are areas in your life where compromise has gained such a strong foothold that you would rather defend your beliefs or your behavior than actually sit and listen to the idea that maybe there's some truth about it. We we get to the place where we go, what's the big deal? If I watch this movie with explicit language and explicit sexuality, it doesn't really hurt anyone. And the kids are in bed. What's the big deal if we watch this horror film depicting rape, demon possession, murder, and rage? What's the big deal? It's all pretend. What's the big deal if we move in together before marriage? Is that really hurting anyone? Lots of people are doing it. What's the big deal if I have this secret conversation with another man or woman on Facebook when my spouse doesn't know? What's the big deal if our kids can never go to church, or maybe just go to church once or twice? Sports are an important part of their lives. What's the big deal if my kids are getting good grades and not but missing out on church because education's important? Is anyone in this room right now feeling a little defensive about some of these areas? Yeah, I am because it's important. I agree. But it is not ultimate. What if I pushed a little harder? You'll have to forgive me for this. I'm the youth pastor here. Parents, I've been the student ministry pastor here at Compass Church for just over 10 years, it's been a long time. Can I tell you what the number one reason students give for not reading their Bible and going to church? Your kids, I'm too busy. I have homework, my coach won't let me go. Parents, I'm watching us raise a generation who would rather perform than pursue Jesus because performing is when they feel the most loved by you. The number one question that youth pastors all over this country ask is this, how do we compete with sports in school? How do we do it? We're losing. We can't do it. How do we show kids how to prioritize a relationship with Jesus in this context? Guys, is our sports bad? Heck no, they're great. Our, is education bad? Of course not. Education's a priority, but neither of them are ultimate. Only Jesus is ultimate. And here's the reality, compromise has allowed us to forget that. And compromise has caused many of our kids to be raised with no idea how to have a genuine relationship with Jesus. Our kids are reading their Bibles in the morning and we go, Good job, Billy. Our kids are scoring a touchdown and we're jumping up and down and screaming. It's compromise. And this is exactly why God is preparing to come and wage war with the double-edged sword if Pergamum doesn't repent. He knows that their compromise, allowing people among them to sow seeds of doubt, will eventually wipe out their presently strong faith in him. Just like it was for Pergamum, compromise is in my estimation. One of the greatest risks to the church today out of a desire to acclimate to the things of culture. We as individual Christians and churches are compromising left and right. We compromise our beliefs and we compromise our behavior. Christians today, our beliefs, we compromise our beliefs all the time. We seem ready to compromise beliefs, doctrine, God's word, in order to fit in with society. And this is becoming extremely and increasingly difficult. Why? Because society loves it when the church compromises. They celebrate us. They go, yay, you get it now. This is why the term evangelical gets such a bad rap in our society today because evangelical churches have placed scripture as their highest authority and we're unwilling to waver from that and Compass Church is an evangelical church. We believe in the Bible. We believe in what it actually says. We believe scripture is our authority and cultural values are held at bay by this value. We don't just come up with our own ideas and then use scripture to support them. Church. We need to care more about the approval of God than we need to do the approval of man. Because anything less will cause us to compromise. And I'm not just talking about uh, these just beliefs. I'm also talking about behaviors. It's not just beliefs, behaviors. Beliefs, church, we need to repent. We're looking at culture and saying, yeah, tell us what we should do. We w- I, and it's good that we love them, but we need to repent because God's way is the only way. And repent does not mean I just feel bad about it. It means I turn and I act differently. Church, we need to repent. We're compromising our beliefs in order to appeal to culture when the gospel is plenty enough to appeal to the culture if it's preached. Number two, we compromise our behaviors. A voice in our head says, look, I know what the Bible says, but in this particular extenuating circumstance, just this once, it's okay. And in that moment, the consequences of our behavior seem so small, and that is Satan's strategy. We allow questions and doubts like this to swirl around in our minds, taking our minds captive, and inevitably we get sucked in, and we go to the porn site, and we watch it. We talk to the person who we know we shouldn't on Facebook. We watch the movie. We listen to the music. We move in together. We overcommit our children and forget to remind them that there's a God who loves them. We give Satan a way in, and before we know it, we've secretly become someone we never thought we would. We get stuck in cycles of behavior that are destructive, and we end up diminishing our faith and our relationship with God because of the shame and the guilt. It's easier just to ignore him. And our faith was once strong. C.S. Lewis says this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft, soft underfoot without sudden turns, without milestones, without signposts, compromise. This morning, if you find that you're struggling with compromised behaviors or with compromised beliefs, I believe Jesus is calling us to repent just like he does Pergamum. And remember, repent, it's a heart of humility, it's a heart of regret, it's saying, God, I'm done, I'm sorry, I admit that I've done this wrong thing, and then it is turning and living and acting and behaving and believing different. Is God calling you to repent today of compromise? Here's the good news if he is. Verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What does this mean, hidden manna? What is that? Manna was the food that fell from heaven each day provided by God for Israel as they wandered in the desert. It was food provided by God, literally fell from the sky. It provided exactly what they needed for each day to stay alive in the desert. And hidden manna is nothing less in Revelation here than a powerful reference to Jesus, the Savior of the world that so many are blind to. He's come and provided exactly what we need in this life and in the next. What is a white stone with a new name? Well, in ancient times during trials, the jurors would have two stones, and each stone is what they would place forward, saying whether or not they thought the defendant was innocent or guilty. And guess what color the stone was if, if they wanted to say this, this defendant was innocent. It was white. A white stone represented freedom. It represented acquittal. And the name, the new name. Well, with us, a name is no more than really a distinguishing mark. It's a label, one that I often forget. I'm not good at names. But in ancient times, the name was widely held up to some what a man or woman stood for. It represented their character. It stood for the whole person. And here, the new name represents a new identity, brand new life that would be found in Jesus. What is this last verse saying? In other words, no matter how successfully Satan has deceived you, no matter how deeply you are in compromise, if you turn, if you repent through Jesus, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave three days later, he will give you a new life, a new identity, and a new hope. I'm gonna have the band come up. and We're gonna close with a song. A song that I hope really just draws our eyes and our hearts to Jesus. Look, we're all in the same boat here. No one in this room is free from this. We are all compromisers. We all do it. We've all done it. We're all stuck in it right now. And here is the beauty. There is Jesus who's calling the church in Pergamum to repent just like he's calling us today. Just repent and turn. And when we we turn away from the things that we were doing, we turn towards God and we have a new behavior, he wipes the slate clean because he paid for it all on the cross. He was killed on our behalf for our sins. And three days later, because he was God, he rose from the dead, defeating death once and for all. And you and I can be free from our compromise. This morning, as I close, I, I open with a question. What would you say if I told you that there's something in your life, something that you are often blind to that can utterly destroy your walk with God? Well, that thing is compromise. So I have a new question for you. What area of your life have you compromised that God is calling you right now to turn from? Here's my challenge. This week, I want everyone in this room myself include, I want all of us. identify and share. Identify an area of your life through prayer, whatever it takes, an area of your life through your spouse, through your friends, whatever the case may be, an area where you have compromised and I want you to share it with someone. Share it with your connection group, share it with your friends, share it with your Bible study. Say this is where I've been compromising. I need you to hold me accountable because I can't do it on my own. Identify and share. Repent with each other. Hold each other accountable. And Jesus, he's got it from there. Let's sing. I just pray right now, Lord. That's I love that truth. The idea today is not that we spend all this time now focusing on our compromises, Lord. It's not that we sit here and, and stay in our shame and feel bad about it, God. The idea is that we turn our eyes upon you, the hidden manna, the one who promises that if we cast our our, our sins, if we cast our compromise, we cast our past, we cast all of it on you, that you take it and you remove it as far as the east is from the west, setting us free. Lord, I pray for those in this room who have no relationship with you, God, who, who've never given their heart to you. God, would they hear this message that you're not a God who says, here's your mistakes, now dwell on them. But you're a God who says, here's your mistakes, now give them to me and I'll take them. God, that they might turn today from their ways, hand our sin to you and say, I trust you. And for those of us who are here now, God, Christians, we followed you our whole lives and maybe right now your spirit is opening our eyes to compromises in our life. God, give us the courage and the diligence to go after these compromises to confess them, to repent from them, Lord, to begin to take thoughts captive so that we can, um, by your spirit, be guarded from these things in the future, God. Thank you for your son who makes all of these things possible. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him? find out more about our church online, go to www.cultuschurch.info, and we'll see you next time.